This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Olympics. Guys, it's the Olympics again. They're back. They're back and better than ever, maybe. I don't know. We'll find out. I think they're just the same as ever. Same as they ever were. I was I was hearing some stuff about the condition of the practice pools that the, the swimmers are using. Yep. And the adjective used to describe them was soupy. Oh, <laughs> I don't so, uh, g- g- like thank you to our brave young men and women for for braving that to br- get us some medals like you and me. Oh, those medals proxy. are for us. Yeah, they're for us. We're Americans. We get we can enjoy all those medals without having to do any of the work. I think all those medals go into Social Security. Like so we get them like they they melt them down and turn them into money and then put them in our social security fund. Mm-hmm. I was at, um, I was watching part of the Olympics with Susanna's brother and fiance and Susanna, I guess too <laughs> at a, at a bar last night. And we were looking at the very muscular young men Uh-huh. and, uh, Susanna's brother remarked that we have all those muscles. Like I have the oh. same muscles as those TV boys, but Correct. Like just not not as much. I don't have you not seen, not so you'd notice. <laughs> I don't know. Like some of those swimmers, I think have extra muscles. Ooh, is that like is that like the the more covert form of doping? Is they just like open you up and Do stuff you extra muscles in there? Remember eight years ago when like they were breaking down scientifically why Michael Phelps was so good at swimming, and it was because his proportions know. are all wrong. Like his he's arms, a broken man. <laughs> his arms are longer than they should be in spots, and like his legs aren't long enough. But it all comes together into the perfect swimming body. Welcome he's to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. It's all good all- luck to all our our test tube bred <laughs> men and women in the Olympics this this year. Yes, good luck to bring them. home the gold. I need... If you get a silver or bronze, don't even get on the plane home. You're yeah. not welcome back here. Just stay there. It'll be fine. Uh, Andrew, we're going to talk about James Bond this week. Uh, I read Ian Fleming's Casino Royale. On our march to uh, our live show at the end of this month, we are kind of cramming out some off-list books. <laughs> and Our forced march to the live show. <laughs> Which I'm very excited about. Oh, no, I'm uh, super excited. Don't get me wrong. It's what, like two weeks from now? Two weeks who from yesterday? Even knows? Two, who I even mean, knows? Th- th- I know. It's two weeks from yesterday. Oh, you know. Mm, sure. Um, <laughs> but before we uh, put on our double O's and drink some martinis, I think, what? You wanted to talk about some stuff we mentioned last week, right? We, we never get as much email as we do when we talk about <laughs> YA. That's true. Fiction, which is, I like it a lot. I'm not complaining at all, but I've never gotten so much communication about stick shifts. 
in, ever in my entire life. Um, so uh, one of the people who contacted us about this was our listener, Amanda, who uh, gave us a couple things. She says that uh, I love driving stick shifts. I really should have capitalized that. Let me give that another try. I love driving stick shifts. Mm. Uh, three reasons. A, you can downshift and rev up your engine to better get out of the way of doofus drivers. <laughs> B, it probably is a little bit of a control thing, which if you'll remember is is the theory that we put forward for okay. why people still liked it. And C, upshifting into fifth gear with the radio blaring radar love is one of the best feelings ever. <laughs> I assume fifth gear is the be- the highest it's best the, one. Got to be the best gear. Do so, they have like higher gears on better cars? Oh, like if you were like like Tim how Allen? you buy like a ten speed versus a like more speed, more bike? power. Yeah, like eighth gear. Oh, 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 oh. this car has an eleventh gear. Are you doing a home improvement thing? That's yeah, cool. yeah. Uh, a lot of people also wrote in and just said like because it's fun which i sure which is valid i'm that's totally real somebody said it was like safer for driving on ice or like slick roads i don't sure maybe Maybe? i like more control over the gears that are actually happening means that you could maybe shift into a like a, a way that automatic transmission. Yes, I, I mean, I like if you're in a little Honda Civic driving on ice, like woe betide you, regardless yeah. of what your transmission is. But I know you wanted to quick mention some uh, other YA stuff, but I do want to say what one thing in Stick Shift's uh, corner is that no one came out in defense of automatic transmission. Well, because automatic <laughs> transmission is just like the boring blah default. It's just like there. Yeah. Which is part of why I like it. Like we just it's, we just assume that it's there. It's not like exciting. You don't have to have an opinion about it. It's like breathing air. Like I need to breathe air, but I don't go around talking about how great air is. Well, you usually know? it's not as great as it needs to be, but that's a separate issue. Yeah, it's just it's a thing, and yeah, it's the default. So nobody cares. That's true. Let's get some love, love an underdog. Get some love for automatic transmission. Andrew, what else did you want to talk about? Uh, Amanda also made a note on John Green and the Mani- Manic Pixie Dream Girl. If you didn't listen or if you've forgotten, which we often do from week <laughs> to week, um, I had commented that Rainbow Rowell's writing um, was in the same like wheelhouse as John Green's, but I thought that um, she did female characters better like in the John Green stuff that I've read. Sure, sure. I feel like the girls are often there to flit into a young man's life and leave him forever changed, but they maybe aren't great characters in and of themselves always. Um, she says, I thought the whole point of most of his writing was that you can think someone is an MPDG, but really she is a whole person, not just this magical being who exists to give your life meaning. Maybe that's more Paper Towns than anything else he wrote, but I think that a lot of his writing is making the point that if you assume a person is just one thing, then you're missing out on the marvelous complexity that is that person and in so doing, shortchanging both yourself and them. Those people aren't just in your life for window dressing. They are whole people irrespective of your feelings about them. So I thought that was a very... um, well-made and eloquent point like counterpoint to the thing that i said yeah that's so yeah i couldn't have said it better myself even if i'd thought of it but i didn't <laughs> think of it so thanks for writing in amanda yeah if you have stuff you want to tweet or email us i'll just do the social stuff up top here you can tweet at us at overdue podcast at wait what <laughs> well yeah, twitter.com you can try to slash, do it up here <laughs> twitter.com slash overdue podcast facebook.com slash overdue podcast and then overduepod at gmail.com. 
Um, we all we are pretty up on all three of those feeds, and um, we've like boosted a couple things on Facebook lately. Like people have written in asking for like specific book recommendations, and yeah, it's been fun. Like we're just idiots, so we turn it over to our listeners, and then they take care of business. So that's that is certainly yeah, true. I really, um, it, I really like it. Does my gnarled, blackened heart good to see that sort of thing happen? <laughs> Uh, and if you don't follow us on those feeds and only kind of check in when it's like Monday, which is new podcast day, you might have missed that we released our bonus episode for the Phantom Tollbooth uh, last Thursday. So that's like if the, if you're using your phone, like that's there. Go listen to it. Uh, Catherine and Margaret were kind enough to record that one with Andrew. So My thanks to them. On appointment television helped us out. Gave mm-hmm. Craig a week off. He was off yeah. sipping something out coconuts maybe just like water but it, the most important part is this out of a coconut yeah i definitely did that it really creates a relaxed vibe definitely what i was able to do with my time uh but that was a great episode so you should go listen to it and oh, then thanks. go listen to the rest of their podcasts that they make and- hello craig i'm james bond <laughs> oh. give me a martini please <laughs> Stirred and shaken, whatever you want to do to it. My name's Give James me an Appletini. <laughs> He's kind of Australian a little bit. I'm James I, Bond. Is that what this book is about? Uh, Yeah, I think he's actually supposed to be like Scottish and Swiss. Cool. But that's cool, not cool. explained in this book, so whatever. Um, <laughs> we're going to talk about the very first James Bond novel, Casino Royale, which was written in 1952 by Ian Fleming. Sir Ian Fleming? Or I just think, Ian Fleming? I think just Ian Fleming. He Ian Lancaster Fleming. He did, and he did not get to Sir, but he did uh, have an ex- like an extensive intelligence career in the uh, the British like naval force, right? Um, he was personal assistant to the director of naval intelligence during World War II, and then he became a lieutenant and a commander in the Naval Volunteer Reserve. So, okay. okay, military adjacent. Sure. Absolutely. Um, let's. Where do you want to start? Because I have I have a lot of stuff. Like he did a lot of things, and there's also kind of a uh, undercurrent running through this that is kind of like I feel a little bit mean for pointing out. But okay. Ooh. Well, let's let's <laughs> save that. Okay. For a few minutes from now. I mean, like the big picture that I have right is that he was born in 1908. He was mm-hmm. the second of four kids. Mm-hmm. His dad served in World War One. Fun fact, his dad's obituary, his dad was killed in World War One. His dad's obituary is written by Winston Churchill. Right. Yeah, he died in uh, 1917 on the Western Front, actually. Mm-hmm. He got killed by, by German shelling. Um, so. And Fleming then, he was nine at that point. He then went on to school and studied abroad in Germany and Austria I don't think he went to university. He just kind of, he went into, he started working for Reuters. Is that how you pronounce it? Reuters? Reuters, yeah. Reuters. Um, he, I mean, he attended um, Eton. Is it E-T-O-N? Is that Eton or Eton? Uh, whatever. Eton College. We'll say Eton College. Mm. Um, he wasn't good at grades, but he was good <laughs> at sports. Yes, and he was. He, and Many he cups. Ed- yeah, he edited the school magazine. Sure. Um. And that's that like begins this thread that I noticed like all through his career where he's like not naturally good at a lot of the stuff that he tries his hand at and his okay. family needs to like intervene all the time. Ooh. So um, at uh, at college, he was good at sports, bad at grades and edited the magazine fine. 
Um, he failed examinations after that to get into the foreign office. Uh, but his mother actually worked her connections to get him that job with Reuters. Interesting. Um, he bowing to family pressure. He went into banking in 1933, became a stockbroker in 1935. Apparently was not great at either thing. Uh-huh. Um, he uh, became engaged to someone in there. And I think in um, the early 30s, his mom did not approve. So she made him break it off. Like just lots of. Man, I want to read a book about meddling. his mom. <laughs> uh, he when he was trying to get Casino Royale published, um, he sent the book. The, the book made it to the Jonathan Cape Publishing House and his brother, Peter leaned on them to publish the book now it, it did become a success in its own right after that but like immediately yeah he yeah, did yeah. like it went into like three printings or whatever it was but he did need his family just to like push him over just push him over the line a little bit sure just sure. push him over the line a little bit yeah he seemed to have flourished during his time in the in the royal navy though yeah he like did, he seemed he, pretty indispensable yeah especially when the um the general who he was the assistant to hold on let me uh bring back is that admiral godfrey is that his name i think that's right but let me just confirm i think that uh yeah rear admiral john godfrey and so he was this guy's um personal assistant and very close confidant i guess and while um godfrey was running the show he was a big he was a big deal in uh british intelligence so he formed this a uh, unit of commandos, the 30 assault unit. God, and the T-Force, which is a separate unit that he T-force, founded as well. force yep. which is like, it sounds like... An anime that I a- want to watch? <laughs> yes. Sign me up. Yeah. But yeah, these uh, his experiences in uh, British intelligence obviously informed the James Bond books. He came up with a couple of insidious and like cool but really nasty intelligence things like uh, most of them never like came to fruition like they never actually got put into use but there was one called uh, operation ruthless oh yeah that's a good one um, is it a good one because the goal was to (laughs) all right you you step one you seize a german plane that's in flyable shape Mm mm-hmm you staff it with British dudes, one of whom can speak really good German. Yes. You crash that plane on purpose into the British Channel. Correct. Uh, a German boat comes along and rescues its yes. its soldiers, and then the soldiers Trojan horse the boat and kill everybody on it and take uh, it over. Yep. Like pretty good intelligence, but like pretty bad morals being a person (laughs) yeah he wrote something called the trout memo which kind of outlined some of this stuff and it was basically using fly fishing as a metaphor for tricking germans (laughs) like what are some schemes that we can use another involved i don't remember what what this one was called but it was you would uh put a you would like put a corpse where the germans could find it like a pair like a paratrooper Mm-hmm. And you'd put papers on it that detailed fake plans. And I think this might have actually happened or a version of it happened that would like let them know it would tell them that they were gonna go do something else and then the British forces could like meet them there with the upper hand. Yeah, so that that's from the Trout memo. It was uh, number twenty eight on the list apparently. And <laughs> it's it didn't 
like there's an implied connection between it and Operation Mincemeat, which oh, was yeah, carried out Mincemeat. carried yep. out in 1943 to uh, conceal the invasion of Italy from the direction of North Africa. Um, though it was actually developed by somebody else, like yes. later. But and then yeah, the- he was a pay- he was good at good at uh, figuring out ways to punk Germans. <laughs> Uh, and one of the other ones that's important is Operation Goldeneye, which had to do with uh, intelligence and defense of Gibraltar in case the Italian forces wanted to move, or like in Spain, if, in case Italy right. wanted so to there, move there past Gibraltar. Right, so there was this rumor that um, the Spanish general Francisco Franco had formed uh, an alliance with the Axis powers, like covertly. Yep. And so Operation Goldeneye was... Basically, like surveillance, and if those rumors were actually true and came to pass, um, like plans for sabotage of yeah. Spain, which I don't um, think came to pass. Yeah. So, so like, um, like the other one, operate. What was the other operation? The, the ruthless or the, mincemeat or Operation Ruthless. Yeah, like Operation Ruthless, it didn't actually come to anything, but he did later name his house Goldeneye. Yes, in part after this. His Jamaican Operation. villa, basically. Yes, yeah. right. And um, and anybody who's been alive for long enough, I guess, will remember Goldeneye as both the name of one of his books and as the 1995 movie wherein uh, Pierce Brosnan de- debuted as Bond. True, true. Um, um, so yeah, classic, classic video game as well. Uh, video game. I mean, it's, you can't play it now, but at the time, <laughs> dang. Uh, did a couple other quick hits as you do some quick hits. Um, he, you know, launched his writing career in, in 52 with Casino Royale, um, while he was at Jamaica, he churned out, he would vacation there while he was working in journalism and he would churn out a book every year after that. Uh, and the series really took off in 61 when John F. Kennedy listed from Russia with love on his top 10 books list. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then in 1962, the movie Dr. No was released. So he got to see both Dr. No and from Russia with love. Um, I think he was around for a little bit of the Moonraker filming before he died from, uh, I think it was, it was like a second heart attack. Yeah. He, he had a heart attack in 1961 that he never quite fully recuperated True. from. Um, and then in August of 1964, he had, a, he had another one that um, killed him. There were two, his two last books, uh, man with the golden gun was one of the books. And then Octopussy and the living daylights was the other book. Mm-hmm. Um, those were published posthumously. Uh, man with the golden gun in particular was, it got a bunch of like bad but also sad reviews because he never like Fleming never got a chance to go back through and edit it again after he had written it and so uh, it's considered one of the one of the weaker efforts but also like there's a pretty good excuse. Yeah. Like I think dying is a pretty good excuse. It's a good excuse. He also wrote Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Did you yeah, know that? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think I knew that. I know that now because of my Great. research. Uh, <laughs> there are there are a couple other things like he was he was involved with this uh with this woman um, oh uh ann uh ann rothermere who had married uh of a count or a viscount or something sure and yeah yeah she had married someone else and but she like maintained her relationship with fleming and he like she had a stillborn daughter by him at which point her husband left her and then she and fleming got married but they continued to have affairs like throughout their marriage. Yeah, it was afterward. not a great scene. Yeah, but that's that's him. 
for the most part. I'm sure th- there's a lot of stuff. I found a recipe on his website for scrambled eggs. What? A recipe for scrambled eggs? I I'm What's gonna, the recipe? I'm going to read the whole you thing. You put eggs in a bowl and you take a fork and you beat them around and then you cook them. Scrambled eggs. Andrew, this is scrambled eggs, quote, James Bond for four individuals. Shaken mustard. 12 fresh <laughs> eggs, salt and pepper, five to six ounces fresh butter. Break the eggs into a bowl. Beat thoroughly with a fork and season well in a small copper uh, or heavy or heavy bottom saucepan. Melt four ounces of the butter. When melted, pour in the eggs and cook over very low heat, stirring continuously with a small egg whisk. While the eggs are slightly more moist than you would wish for eating, remove pan from heat, add rest of butter, continue whisking, adding the whole finely chopped ives or fine herbs. Serve on hot buttered toast in individual copper dishes for appearance only. With pink champagne, he specifies the brand Tattinger and then says, and low music. <laughs> what? Okay, and how many eggs go with four ounces of butter? Uh, six ounces of butter, 12 fresh eggs. Because you know a stick of butter is about four ounces. Yeah. So we're talking about like a stick and a half of butter. Yeah. With a dozen eggs. Yeah. No wonder those eggs are so great because they're mostly butter. They're mostly butter What's and there's it? low music uh, playing. Ian Fleming. Low music. Ugh, you brilliant jerk. <laughs> Uh, Andrew, I want to talk about James Bond and this book, but I think we should take a quick break. Yeah, me too. Bye. <laughs> okay. Craig, I want to make a website. But oh, I don't know how. Do, um, I think you do know how. I think you've just forgotten. I try, I got on Angel Fire and I tried to make a website and it went super bad. Help me, Craig. Uh, I'll do my best. Um, thankfully, this episode of Overdue is sponsored by our good friends at Squarespace. Squarespace? Yep. Tell me more. <laughs> They're a website that helps you make websites. Whoa. Um, whatever kind you want, like a gallery or a blog or like an online store. Um, I hear that it's easy because there's a simple and intuitive process. You get a free custom domain if you sign up for a year. So I know that's like the hardest part is like getting that slick domain name that you getting want. Like buttery eggs.org. Now to go I with your website. can't guarantee that that's available, but if you sign up with Squarespace, oh, okay, you're on it. Um, I'll also mention that they have some beautiful templates. I've used some myself. It does not seem to be Verizon says no. Let me see what go, go daddy. Okay. You keep going. All right. Um, you keep going, Daddy. So you also have commerce tools, as I mentioned, if you wanted to sell like egg-related merchandise. I presume that's the website you're building right now. And if you have any trouble with your Squarespace website, you can use their awesome 24-7 customer support uh, to solve those problems. I've used them myself, and they're, they're actually really helpful. Um, what I do need to tell you is that if you start your free trial today, no, you should start your free trial today, Andrew, at squarespace.com and enter the offer code OVERDUE to get 10% off your first purchase. Ooh, sounds Are like you going to make that like egg website? Quite a deal. Are you going to make that egg website? Um, I may or may not be buying a domain. Don't worry about it. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Squarespace. Set your website apart. Andrew, Craig, how many James Bond films have you seen? 
You know, not all of them. I'm not like our a couple of our roommates in college had this project where they just watched all of them. And like at the time, I think Casino Royale was the newest one. Man, it was the new hotness. Out, yeah. We've been out of college for a long time. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I have. And, like, they, and they like watched all of them. But yeah. I've like I've seen a couple of the Pierce Brosnan ones. All of the all of the. um Man, now I'm spaced on his name. The Daniel Craig's? Yeah, Daniel Craig. All of his, but the latest one. I same here. I did not see the latest one. People said it was underwhelming. But like, yeah, I've not I haven't I've never been like a huge James Bond fan, like number one James Bond fan. It's hard it's hard to be a number one. There's so much of There's it. There's so much of it. I can't participate in a conversation about like which is your favorite. Yeah. I'm not well because you just like Connery. make fun of George Lazenby and then or <laughs> Timothy Dalton or whatever, and then you call it a day. Yeah, I think so. I I think like for me, Sean Connery. By the time I was aware that like he was a person, he was a cartoon. Thanks SNL. So like, right, sure. I can't go back and just idly watch old James Bonds and not at least think of the cartoon of himself he was playing in The Rock with Nicolas Cage like that's which if you watch that movie pretending that he's James Bond it's way better like he's (laughs) like they caught James Bond and imprisoned him in Alcatraz you're the man now dog you're the man the right movie (laughs) that's a different no that's Finding Forrester League of Extraordinary Gentlemen am I right (sighs) no no so it it's I was Interested to go and read this first James Bond book. A, having never read any of the James Bond books, um, because he's become such a like. Now to make a Bond movie is to like engage with the cultural legacy of that character, and this is a book that has that when written has none of that baggage, which I think it's something that we get to do occasionally on the show, and I, I find that interesting. Sure. Um. So. This book is set in a casino for the most part. I don't know if you could tell that by the title. What kind of casino would you say? Like, if you had to pick like an adjective or some kind of word to describe the kind of casino it was, like, what would you pick? Well, let me. I'll just let Fleming paint a word picture for you. This is okay. the opening line of the book. The scent and smoke and sweat of a casino are nauseating at three in the morning. Then the soul erosion produced by high gambling, a compost of greed and fear and nervous tension, becomes unbearable, and the senses awake and revolt from it. So like a bat, a gross one? Like a, a bad one? Is it, does the casino have like a gym next to it? Like what are we talking about? It's so... I. The people Every who are casino in the- I've ever been in has smelled like Heineken and desperation. Like I don't know what he, <laughs> I don't know what he's talking about. I think there's I've I've only been in a casino. Have I only been in a casino when I tried out for Wheel of Fortune? That's sad. I go, I like every hotel you can stay at in Vegas, which oh, I go to yeah. like every year for CES, is attached to a casino, and so you end up between like staying in the hotel and going out with other journalists and taking meetings in other hotels, you end up walking through like half a dozen casinos and they're yeah. all just kind of sad. Well, at least in three in the afternoon. That's, <laughs> that's true. And their goal is to keep you in there and disorient you 
and ply you with drinks. And right. Food. You just you go in there and they're so big that you get lost. And so you sit down and you're like, might as well, might as well roll them bones. Might roll a well couple f- bones. Throw my money away. Put it all on black. So this casino is in the French town of Royale, which, oh, uh, as it. we discover later in the book, is kind of, it's been on hard times after the war, like the, it used to be a popular seaside uh, getaway for a lot of British people, actually, and since, like, you know, World War II austerity and whatnot, that's not happening as often, um, a lot of ne'er-do-wells seem to come here to gamble (laughs) uh the big kind of background drama that this book sets up is we're in the beginnings of the cold war there's a lot of tension with russia and there's this fifth column that they refer to which are like french communists that might be gathering strength um so on the first page of the book we meet bond he seems to be sad about the first adjective that is used to describe him is tired. So okay. he's been in the casino. He's been thinking about how nauseating it is, how soul eroding it is. And he is stalking his prey for this mission, who is Le Chiffre. Is that the name of somebody? Is that like a French word for like ennui or something? No, well, it could be. I think it means the number um, or some version of that. He is a high rolling man who is a bad guy, we are told. Natch. Natch. And <laughs> uh, Bond is there to take him down. So Bond's cover story is that he's this like rich, spoiled brat from Jamaica. Okay. <laughs> and, like his dad like owns property in Jamaica, and he's there to like squander all of his money gambling in Europe. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there's like a couple reasons why they pick that. Like they can reroute money from London to Jamaica to Bond uh, outside of Paris. And theoretically, nobody's supposed to know who he is. So Le Chiffre, we get like a dossier on him, um, where like the second and third chapters of the book are actually from M's point of view. M, as we know, has been played in the films by Judy Dench. Dame Judy Dench. Dame Judy Dench, excuse me. Get it uh, right or pay the price. I know. In the book, it's a dude that is in these couple chapters and nowhere else. And then occasionally you hear about him and that's about it. Dude Jeremy Dench. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and the thing that we learn about Le Chiffre, Le Chiffre. is he is this rich agent of the communist controlled French trade union and if he has all this money, he could theoretically kind of bankroll some sort of uprising or mobilization of forces, which obviously Britain wants to squash. Uh, he bought a bunch of brothels because he's into that. Cool. And then France passed a law that said you couldn't have brothels. So <laughs> couldn't he even get like grandfathered in. N- nope. 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 Jeez. Uh, okay. So his all of his investments like turned to nothing, and he's like woefully in debt. Mm-hmm. And like any good debtor, his plan is to gamble himself into the black. Of course, yeah. I mean that that's the that's why you have that motto: the house always loses. <laughs> that's how it. That's how it goes. Yeah, I've seen like posters with that on. All it. of America's like self-made men and women have gotten that way because of casinos. Yeah. 
It's the best way to get ahead, mm-hmm. is gambling. Mm-hmm. Now, he has to get the money, Andrew, and he has to get it quick because there's a Russian organization called Smirsh that's coming after him. Smurf? Smirsh? All right. The book does, does, that, not... does that stand for anything? It's like two Russian words jammed together that mean death to spies. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> and it sounds like a bad guy from the Smurfs. I realize all right, so Smurf is Smurf is after him. So the Smurfs are after him because the Smurfs, we all, which we all know, are communists. Actually, go back and watch it. It's true. Yeah, that's why um, Papa Smurf is red. That's why he's wearing. So Papa Smurf is wake up, after sheeple. Him. Yep, to take away. There is only one like prominent female character in this book, just like Smurfette, just saying. Yeah, no, um, the, the uh, connections are hard to dispute. There. They're all there to be seen. Open your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, he has to get these debts cleared through gambling or else Smursh will probably take him out because he's like, if he can't bankroll these people, he is destabilizing was the, this region. so was the gambling their idea or no that's just, his idea okay and they're like watching him to be like well i mean statistically it could work yeah they might just kill him like and he doesn't know if they're technically after yeah, him. yeah i mean like I you will... you could I, I can see it from smurf's point of view you either like you can kill him now and just like guaranteed not get your money back or you can have like five percent chance to get your money back Yes. And then you just kill him in the end anyway. So he ends up dead either way. Yes. And it's win win. The setup is a little murky, like why they need to take him down. And Bond's goal isn't to kill Le Chiffre. Mm-hmm. His goal is to bankrupt and humiliate him at the at the Baccarat table. It sounds like he's already done a pretty good he's got a good start going yeah well she first got so he's got like 10 million franc which i don't know the exchange rate it could be nothing it seems like a lot mm-hmm. he's got 10 meals as they say a lot million. in the book millies and he's gonna he's probably gonna do okay so bond has to go there and like take him out and they say that wait so bond c- is helping the russians or what is bonds no okay that's deal. my job for that's my bad for confusing you okay England needs to like take him down so that he can't bankroll some Smurf operatives. Okay. They are concerned that Smurf might kill him down, like kill him, kill him down. Might Smurf him. They might Smurf him (laughs) and then make a martyr out of him. Oh, okay. Which is a bad scene. Uh, They would rather he be publicly humiliated at a casino so that the the French people that might use his money will like lose confidence in their communist leanings. It's a little. I don't. I've, I've got to say, like Operation Gargamel does sound <laughs> a little convoluted. It seems like something that would have been on the Trout Memo, like just below <laughs> Operation Totally Not Mincemeat. That was totally my idea. This is like um, idea ninety eight. Yeah. Like yeah. I don't know gambling. I don't know. You figure it out. So they send Bond in. And M tells Bond before he sends Bond in, he's like, okay, you're pretty good at gambling, so we're going to use you, and we're going to send you 10 million francs up front, 10 meals up front, and then we're going to send you another 10 meals, and you can probably get five more, just like you could probably gamble. So I like the idea that London says, all right, we're giving you some money, take five million from other people first. (laughs) And then go up against Le Chiffre. Mm-hmm. Good plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, they set him up with a partner named Mathis, who, upon arriving, 
like gives Bond this like radio at his hotel and makes a big show of it and like makes a bunch of noise uh, and immediately tells him that Bond's cover has been blown and there are people in the hotel room above him who have been listening to him through the fireplace. So that was fast. It was fast. It's really early in the book for his cover to be blown mm-hmm. and they don't like deal with it. They just keep going. I was kind of the whole book. I'm kind of surprised by how open everyone is being about like what they're up to. Well, everyone like everyone seems to be wringing their hands and coming up with these really convoluted. Like you can't <laughs> can't can't just kill him. No, you need to like beat him in gambling. But also, there are people who are upstairs from you who want to. I I don't know. Yeah, just kill him. Just, just kill all of them. Maybe just kill all. Man, this could be so much shorter a book. Yeah, that's probably... No wonder his brother needed to get it published. This doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Uh, We also, in this little scene with Mathis, uh, I want to not forget to mention this. Bond's... The dialogue in this book is a little weaker than the prose. And I... How so? the, The main reason, my main evidence for that is how often Bond uses, like, cliches in his speech... Now, are these cliches to us in the modern day, or would they have been cliches in 1952 or whatever? He says the phrase, it's no good crying over spilt milk multiple times. Do you think that he popularized the phrase? I sincerely doubt it. Is you that can fact check me Bond, right now. Like, my name is Bond, James Bond. <laughs> it's shaken, not stirred. No use crying over spilt milk. <laughs> Burn the hand is worth two in the bush. I'm just going through all the phrases that come up in every James Bond movie. Uh, later a in, in time saves nine. <laughs> uh, later in the book, when uh, these two guys try to kill Bond and end up blowing themselves up instead, he says that they were hoisted by their own petard, which uh, that's like from Hamlet or something. Mm-hmm. Um, he he at one point he says in one paragraph says the phrase again. No crying over spilt milk. No, he's crying over spilt milk. And it's water over the dam. Like, he's just a guy with clunky language and idioms aplenty. You're trying to find when the first person cried over spilled I milk. Damn, you know, it's hard to look up idioms on the internet. <laughs> I don't, I somehow don't think the Urban Dictionary is going to be. Oh, I was wondering how long it's going to take before urban, you found urban, a sexual urban explanation. Urban Dictionary says that it goes back to 2006. So, great. It's a lot. I've heard that the internet remembers everything, and then I remember that everyone on the internet is 12, and they don't remember anything. <laughs> um, not much is known about... This is from uh, knowyourphrase.com. Sure. Thanks, thanks guys. Uh, I like your 1998 website. Uh, go to Squarespace. Uh, not much is known about the origin of this phrase. The earliest that I could find the expression in writing is in a book called Banking Under Difficulties from 1888. Um, so yeah, it did predate this particular book. So yeah, (laughs) it's, yeah, it just feels a little clunky in the dialogue. The prose is often pretty good, or at least it moves you know, Fleming is quoted as saying like your main goal as a writer is just to get them to turn the page. And I think he succeeds with that. Sure. And then there was, um, something that has been described as the Fleming effect where, uh, Fleming would use, um, like stuff like branded products or just like stuff that you would find in your everyday, not like when you're watching a TV show and like all the MacBooks have the Apple logo taped over, like they would, (laughs) he would actually use common touchstones to like make the world feel real and lived in. He name drops a lot of brands of wine. Mm -hmm. He does like Bond does drive a Bentley. Uh, 
uh, and they talk about a Citroën, which is a French car Citroën. later. So yeah, he. I know I get all nasally. When he was I do really, my he was really anticipating the movie industry. I think he was. He knew. He knew it was happening. And every James Bond movie is going to have like a zoom in close up on some Sony <laughs> phone or a car or something. So Mathis. Let's go back to Mathis. He tells Bond that he's going to have another partner on this mission sent to him from London. And lo and behold, it's a woman. And Oh, boy. Bond isn't quite excited about it. So Mathis describes her to him. And here's what he says. She has black hair, blue eyes, and splendid er protuberances back and front. And she is a wireless expert, which, though sexually less interesting... Makes her a perfect employee of Radio Center and assistant to myself in my capacity as wireless salesman for this rich summer season down here. Okay, Mathis. Uh, Mathis. So, a running theme of this book, and I think it got played up a lot when they were making Casino Royale because it was like they were making it within the knowledge of the rest of the franchise of Bond the Womanizer, Bond the Sleep with Every Woman He Can Find guy, Mm -hmm. is... Vesper Lynn, who we meet, who is the woman, um, she kind of Bond gets really into her into a way in a way that he never has, or at least the book tells us he never has. Like to to the point where there's lots of passages of Bond saying that women are just for recreation and they get in the way. And what was she doing here? She's just going to get in trouble. And then by the end of the book, he's ready to marry this woman because they've spent like a month together and she's made him feel things he's never felt before. And that's before they've even had sex ever. So like... Dang. Just just not even because of of her protuberances? Not because of her protuberances. Uh, And there's one... There's a part at the end of the book that is like the end of that arc that I want to get to. But uh, we got some plot to get through first. Okay, yeah, so, mash through that because I really, I really just want to talk about James Bond as a fictional character. So, like, let's let's yeah, just yeah, drill yeah. through the essential bits of the book, and I'll try not to interrupt, and and then we'll that's fine. Close out with some Bond talk. We meet another. I mentioned the attempted, uh, the attempt on Bond's life where these two idiots blow themselves up. Like, that's cool. Uh, he he gets to the Baccarat game, which is the like, that's the main scene of this mission. And it happened earlier in the book than I expected. It would take me too long to explain a game. I only sort of understand on this podcast. So I don't think I'm going to do it, but like Baccarat is sort of like juiced up blackjack. It seems. Go up to to 41. You go up to nine. So maybe juiced up was wrong. That seems worse than blackjack. (laughs) Uh, but there's like, there's some drama in the fact that like Bond runs out of money and then his friend from America, Felix Leitner, who he just met, like loans him a bunch of money and they almost try to kill Bond like at the Baccarat table with this like sneaky cane gun. So like Le Chiffre has these two goons, one Uh-oh, who goons. Bond, yeah, he's got goons. Bond describes the one guy as Lenny from Of Mice and Men, except uh, the thing that would make it easy for him to kill is not infantilism, it's marijuana. <laughs> he probably just does a bunch of dope. So he's just Cheech? Yeah. Or Chong? <laughs> so there's Chong, and then there's the Corsican, uh, which is a guy who carries a cane, and he looks like, as Bond calls him, a Corsican shopkeeper. 
Sure. I'm sure this is some kind of racial slur that we just don't understand. There's a lot of like mid 20th century ethnic labeling that like to a modern ear feels really inappropriate or at least like overly reductive. Mm -hmm. I imagine at a time like pre the globalization that we understand today and kind of how that's affected cultural mores where this wouldn't feel as weird. I'm not just I'm not excusing that, but I, I just think that that's like when you're dealing with spies and nationalism and you're trying to like remember what people look like, like that type of intelligence gathering, I imagine is like useful, even well, though I, you wouldn't I, say that to someone's face. Yeah, and I think that's a common thread running through a lot of the Bond books is um this like othering of the yeah. villains. Mm-hmm. And Le Chiffre yeah. Lucifer has like a mixed background. Like he's Mediterranean with some Polish and Jewish of unknown origin. And he's not described physically particularly well. And it's just, he's just kind of this ambiguous other. So yeah, you're right there. Um, the They try to kill Bond with this like sneaky Kane assassination gun. It doesn't work out. Bond's too smart for that. And he takes the money that Felix lent him and totally busts Lucifer at the table and Lashifer's a sore loser, so he runs away. And of course, lo and behold, he captures uh, Vesper as a bait for Bond, and Bond falls for it, and then he is taken in by Lashifer. And this gets to a scene from the film that you might recall that I was surprised to find was in the book, mm-hmm. which is the one where Lashifer takes uh, Bond alone into a room, ties him naked to a chair, and wails on his private parts for like an hour. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that part of the film. I was gonna, I thought you were going to talk about the parkour or something. Like, no, there's no parkour in this book. Oh, unfortunately, that's too bad. It wasn't invented yet. Um, Not till 2006. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this is like some real sadistic stuff that is going on, and I was kind of like a little taken aback that it was in this book and from the 1950s. Um, but that's apparently a criticism that gets levied against Fleming in some of the later work is that he's like a little too graphic with some of the stuff that goes down. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, and very, then, it's a very like 24-ish sort it of It is. Thing. It's very 24-ish. Yeah. Uh, and the theme, and this gets into, we can kind of go to, uh, it doesn't work out. Lashifer gets defeated. The Russians show up and they let Bond go um, and they kill Lashifer. But the thing that happens from here on out is like him and Vesper hanging out together while he's recovering. And he is like, his private parts are messed up for a good long period of time. (laughs) And it prompts some like awkward soul searching of his manhood and whether or not he's going to be literally, literally had literally. (laughs) And like, uh, Lucifera even says that he's going to try and render him impotent and even plans to like actually like castrate him at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a passage that reminded me of Outlander. We talked about this many moons ago uh, where the main male character, Jamie, in that book under, you know, he is sexually abused and uh, like can't like mentally has trouble being physically intimate. And he's a guy who's kind of defined by just like, taken what he wants physically as that's like that's just how he expresses himself and bond has this similar reticence with vesper where he's like he doesn't want to see her for the first couple weeks of his recovery because he's not sure how his body will respond and what that means for how he can like respond to her as would uh, it just be really uncomfortable to like 
Well, he just doesn't know if anything's gonna work, okay. and he doesn't, and he doesn't know what that means for his feelings because he's never like felt this way before. And if he can feel that way for her, if, if his stuff doesn't work, Ugh. like it's, it's, yeah, I can. It's it's like on, on the James Bond spectrum, it's kind of almost sweet. Yeah, but only it is. on that spectrum. <laughs> Yeah, and there's some stuff that like I don't need to go into. It's it's as kind of okay, dude, as you would expect in terms of his ogling of her initially and how much he really just wants to bang her and mm-hmm. is kind of explicit about that. Mm-hmm. But then he's like pondering whether or not he's going to like resign after this mission because it did a number on him. And he has this discussion with Mathis about good and evil, the nature of good and evil, and Mathis tells him, like, it'll be way easier to fight for this kind of thing when you have someone that you care about. Like, yeah. nationalism will only get you so far. When you actually have a family and connections, uh, you'll you'll be good to go. And he's like, surround yourself with people. They're way easier to fight for. So this kind of, like, sends Bond over to give himself over to, to Vesper, both emotionally and physically. Uh, that doesn't go great, and the book ends rather suddenly with uh, a reveal that she was a double agent. Oh, no. Um, and it kind of breaks his heart and ruins him forever, and that's probably why he becomes the James Bond that we know and love. Okay. Or the scamp. No. That we know. So that's true. The movie was true to that particular aspect Certainly. Of, the, mm-hmm. of the book, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a couple other stuff that I'm not saying on purpose, but that's the... Sure, sure, sure. sure. I, and I did enjoy reading it. Like, it moves pretty fast, and it's kind of interesting. Uh, the Backrat stuff is way more interesting to read than I could ever make it on the air. Um, even though I know why they made it Texas Hold'em for a movie in <laughs> 2007 or whatever, because no one would understand this weird European game, and they All would right. just turn it off. <laughs> <laughs> Let me go watch the part where people run on cranes. I'm sure again. in like the 2028 remake, it'll be like they're playing Go Fish or something. Yeah. <laughs> and Bond won't know how to shuffle. So he'll just do like do that thing in the middle of the table where he just like smears all the cards around. Yep. Uh-huh. So what did you want to talk about with James Bond? I just, I just wanted to talk about how troublesome a character he is. And like he's, he's more, he represents this kind of out, dated and toxic idea of masculinity that's even like even more outdated now than it was back in like 2006 when Daniel Craig picked up the the mantle the mantle and like I don't know like it, it's hard to talk about the the franchise at all mm-hmm. without talking about the fact that I mean this character was conceived in the 50s based on a bunch of dudes that Fleming worked with like in the forties and himself and himself. And it's just, it has, he has not evolved with the times. And I mean, like part of that is because of the fan base. Like if you, if you, do you remember how mad they all got when a blonde James Bond was cast? Yeah. Can you imagine like a, a woman or a, person of color or, i want to watch an idris elba bond I, movie so I bad too, or like a gay james bonds like can yeah. you even imagine yeah it'd be like ghostbusters times level hundred madness yeah and i feel like there's so there's also a version of espionage that has this kind of mid-century 
pre-Mad Men sexiness attached to it. It's, I mean, it's, it's a lot of the Bond stuff works best in the context of the Cold War, and I think there's no, I mean, it's not a coincidence that the the hit rate got lower when that conflict ended. Certainly, and 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 the stuff got a little more outlandish. Right. And I think all of the Daniel Craig movies, uh, the last one aside, because I haven't seen it, mm-hmm. they were kind of deliberately, as I said at the top of the show, they're wrestling with, they're bi- making stories about him feeling out of touch. Well, they're, they're, they're making, more about Bond as a person than, I mean, I don't remember yeah. Quantum of whatever, Quantum there of was Solace. Like, there was like a big house in a desert and they were backstage I at a like, Czech there are lots opera. Of explosions, and I remember standing on a train platform with Susanna after and being like, "Huh, that yeah, we saw that." There, that one happened during the writer's strike, so yeah, like I think they but... improv that whole movie. <laughs> but yeah, the first one was about dealing with Bond as a human, and I guess the third one was dealing with Old Bond, Bond as an aging person yeah. and i think that yeah. can be affected like like star trek 2 wrath of connor is one of my very favorite movies deals a lot with the concept of, of aging and it does it to really great effect but and that was a thing you saw happen in 24 is like the best modern analog for me for just James because Bond. yeah in a way just because it's like well because it's treating like terrorism with the over-the-top cartoonishness that bond applied to to the, the cold Russians. war yeah yeah and and that he's still this kind of like somewhat superhuman government agent. Uh, and over the course of that show, even as it got dumber and dumber, uh, they dealt with him as being outdated or him as being behind the times or getting slower. And I feel like that's the only story you can tell. And it's a shame because it's like people like these types of stories. Like you have to find ways to keep, telling them if only because people like plot driven mysteries mm-hmm. um even though there's not too much mystery in this book that sounds like it's all pretty upfront about what's going on yeah maybe a, maybe mystery isn't the right it's more of a thriller like stuff is like what's going to happen next most of the events that occur i could not have like they're not overtly foreshadowed in any way mm-hmm. like there's enough other stuff that is aside from the card table uh that can surprise you and and the action sequence with the there's like a car chase that like is surprisingly modern and like there's gadgets and stuff and it's like okay all right ian fleming you were thinking about this from the get-go weren't you Mm -hmm. these guys are going to play mario kart all right cool (laughs) uh i I do want to see the bond movie where like this hatch under the license plate opens up and like a bunch of banana peels come out (laughs) (laughs) And, and it's just it's yeah, I feel like I could read this book and keep it a little at arm's length and enjoy it just fine. Um, but if if I were not thinking a little bit more deliberately about ways in which it doesn't work, I would be more, you know, I don't know yeah. that I would as easily recommend it Yeah, um, for I, those I, specific like you, reasons. Sure. And if you... If you find bond sort of troublesome and outdated actually go find interviews with daniel craig on the press circuit for this latest bond movie because this was his last one yeah you're right and he was like yolo whatever i'm out of here (laughs) so i'm just like i'm gonna be totally open and talking about what a garbage man james bond is and i'll say like i don't this is 
again, we we've, we've come across these stories a lot where like there are garbage people or people who are behaving in garbage ways mm-hmm. and the author isn't quite condemning them but isn't I, but isn't quite like endorsing them either. yeah like the some of the passages where bond is like really frustrated with the fact that vesper is there at all or that there's a woman coming on his mission seem almost too angry about it yeah so and no looking backwards from the arc where like he opens himself up to her and then gets you know punished for it like I can, I can see a, a a more kinder like reading of that for Fleming's sake. Mm-hmm. Like, but then he went on to write thirteen books with this dude doing all this stuff to <laughs> ladies. So like, I that's not a long con on Fleming's part. Right. He created a character that in his in his description was initially supposed to be like a blunt, boring instrument that stuff happened to. Mm-hmm. Like he picked the name James Bond because he thought it was the most boring name he could think of. <laughs> he took it from the name of a guy who wrote like a bird, like a book on bird wildlife watching. That's not a sentence, but you know, yeah, you know, I mean. bird wildlife watching. You got it right. That's the name of the network. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just wanted him to be this like, so, you know, he's kind of sexy and whatever, but he's kind of just like a machine. And, Mathis even refers to him as like a as a machine at one point. Like mm-hmm. they just need him to do his job, uh, which is a bit of a that's a theme that gets picked up in some of the Daniel Craig movies too. So, yeah, I, I think as a starting point, this is a good one to read. I, the series apparently can be kind of divvied up by the some of the types of bad guys that Fleming writes, as well as like he gets a little bit more experimental in his prose and his narrative style that. I don't know that it went super well for him in some of the later books, but he gets away from just the strict stuff Bond did mm-hmm. um, over the course of thirteen novels. So, okay. yeah, I, if you're if you're intrigued at where the heck James Bond came from, like this is a great place to start, and you get to read about Le Chiffre and Smurfs. Le Chiffre. Um, and I, yeah, Vesper seems like a cool character, but lo and behold, she's not in a lot of the book as much as you would like. Right. So what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, if everyone has a favorite Bond movie or a least favorite Bond movie, and they would like to share their thoughts on it with us, uh, they could do so by writing into overduepod at gmail.com or hitting up those social medias that Andrew mentioned at the top of the show. That's on Twitter and Facebook. Um, we did get a lot of responses to both of last week's episodes. So I want to thank everybody for that. I think Perhaps too many for me to read today. Right, yeah. Perhaps too many. Have we crossed that Rubicon finally? Like you just don't have enough breath in you to give shout outs? We are close. I'm going to... If people don't get in touch with us because we didn't give shout outs, then we'll know that we have to keep doing it. Okay. Do you want... Are you okay with me not reading the list? Yes, I'm... Yeah. Okay. But it's a big list. That's what I'll say. Yeah, I know. And we read every one. Thanks everybody andrew if they want to find out more about the show where should they go they should go to overduepodcast.com our website that we created in squarespace incidentally yep uh remember to go to squarespace and use that code overdue if you want to get 10 percent off on your first order um up on our website we have links to itunes rss uh google play stitcher all ways you can use to subscribe to the show and get new episodes when they drop every monday or in the case of our monthly bonus episodes whenever <laughs> 
And if you subscribe in iTunes, do rate and review us because it helps us rise to the top of the rankings and it just makes us feel good generally. Uh, we've gotten a lot of those in the last week or so. So thanks everybody who's done that. Mm-hmm. We have um, Amazon links to the books that we have read and are going to read if you want to read along or if we talk about a book and you are intrigued by it, click those links, buy the book. We get a cut of that. We have a link to our Patreon page, which you can use to support us financially in like an ongoing fashion. We have links to Stitcher, our podcast host, HeadGum, our podcast network. Wait, you mean Spreaker, our podcast host? Yep, I do. We have links to Spreaker, our <laughs> podcast host, HeadGum, our podcast network. Um, thanks to both of them for their support. Um, I think it's I like think Headgum's one-year anniversary, and yeah, we're coming up we're on coming our one-year one, anniversary. Yeah, because yeah. we were with we got in on the ground floor of that, and I think like in terms of downloads and stuff, we were at least twice as big as we were a year ago. So, thanks to everyone who joined us in the yeah, last year. Yeah, thanks to Headgum, and thank you to everybody who's who's found us and liked us. I guess it's just and spread the word because that that it continues to be a one of the main ways that people cite that they found the show. Yeah, absolutely. So thanks for that. Yeah. Um, I don't know what I'm going to be reading next week. That's okay. I know that I'm going to be reading Watership Down in the next two weeks. Continue to read show. that and, for our live um, show on August 20th at 6 p.m. in Philadelphia at the Tattooed Mom as part of the fourth annual Philadelphia Podfest. Yeah. And we're going to be blasting those links over the next couple of weeks. So everybody Blast who can blasting those links, everybody who can show up to Philadelphia, please do. Um, as you may have seen on Facebook and Twitter, we are doing another choose your own adventure book for the bonus show this month mm-hmm. uh, we're gonna do prisoner of the ant people buckle up and given our track record it means we're not gonna become a prisoner or find any ant people so I bet none of that's gonna happen <laughs> we're just gonna be up in canada and we're gonna like find a weird old lady and then we're going to to get eaten by a dog or something like that'll uh-huh. be that'll be the ending we find <laughs> So stay tuned but, for that. Yeah, look forward to that. Is there anything else? Are we good? I think we're good. One more thank you to the Appointment Television folks, as well as to uh, our friends at Two Bossy Dames, the newsletter, for giving us shouts out this week. Uh, it's Rising Tide raises all boats. Yeah, absolutely. I almost said, I almost said sinks all ships, which is the opposite. Oh, rising Tide sinks <laughs> all the ships. <laughs> all right, friends. Uh, until next week, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast. You sweet boy. Man, I was we were watching part of the Olympics at a bar with Susanna's brother and fiance last night. And man, there's some muscly boys. Did you some real meaty boys? Did you the see the photos of wet Tongan dude? No, I didn't. Oh God, hold on. Oh no. Uh Tongan flag guy. Tongan flag guy. Is he a beefy boy too? Uh you are not prepared I'm not for prepared. this. Beefy gentleman. (laughs) (laughs) Now I need to see this boy. Show me this boy.
What's oh, in the no. chat? Right under Jason Alexander with a wig. Oh, man. <laughs> this glistening boy. This glistening flag boy. Oh, my God. He looks like... He's, he looks like he buttered himself. He looks like that Seinfeld episode. Of oh, Butter. he just broke the Olympics. Oh, man. Look at his. Oh, he's so shiny. Twitter exploded I when he came on. Look at this boy. Oh, my God. Hold on. You can see it. You can see the glistening in this one even better. I can see it fine in this one. No, look at his arm in that one on oh the left. God. What is he have on him <laughs> he looks like a crispy cream man he looks like he's been glazed yeah hot fresh donuts oh man hot and fresh just for you just baked just baked freshly baked mm. all right are you recording yeah i've, I've been recording oh, <laughs> okay all right uh, if we if we've got room this could go at the end all right great